6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We'll start with a word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we stand in awe of you. We thank you, Father, for the blessings you continue to shower upon us. But above all of these, Father, we thank you for the opportunities that you have allowed us to participate in. We do pray, Father, that you would help us prepare ourselves for those opportunities that you put in our path. We pray, Father, that you'd help each of us to grow and grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us comprehend the issues and the insights that make this book such a treasure. As we just commit this time and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we are in the third session of our review of the Epistle to the Hebrews, and uh, this is really quite a book. We're going to find out two things about Christ in this book, very distinctively in this book. We're going to discover that He reveals God to man. We're going to see an insight into Christology, as a theologian would call it, that is very distinctive in this book. You are also going to discover that he, even though he is God, represents man before God. And that has some very interesting ramifications. So he is, we're going to see Christ exalted and we'll see Christ in his humiliation, both pursuing God's will for the creation. The book of Hebrews is sometimes called the riddle of the New Testament. There are more people confused about this epistle. It, is, it contains several passages that are regarded by many as the classical paradoxes, the ones that are, uh, seem to be uh, doomed to confusion. And I'm going to suggest that if we go at this carefully and really pay attention, all the riddles that plague most students of the book will evaporate. That if you do your homework and you follow it through, it's going to be, not only will those riddles be resolved, you'll get a grasp of some breathtaking realities that escape most people. So it's the riddle. The first thing is authorship is considered anonymous. Not only is it anonymous, you'll discover it needs to be because of the circumstances behind it, strangely enough. And so uh, the, the commonly, except in the very earliest ages uh, of the New Testament, It was ascribed to Paul, and we hold the view for lots of reasons that Paul did write it. However, we wouldn't insist upon it, we wouldn't be dogmatic about it, for there's lots of good reasons that it doesn't matter who wrote it. It is skillfully designed to be independent of the author. It basically builds its arguments 
by quoting the Old Testament, drawing upon the very foundation of the readers. So it's really a bridge, and it doesn't matter who built the bridge, is it strong enough, is it real, is the issue. And Paul did not sign it for good reasons, and we talked about that in the early sessions. I won't go through all that again this time. Some people think Apollos wrote it, Barnabas. There's all kinds of conjectures you'll run into if you study the commentaries. These other conjectures suffer from one particular issue. They have no, there's no evidence for any of them. There's a lot of evidence to indicate it was Paul. It doesn't prove it, but we're going to just... You'll often hear me... Slip instead of saying the writer of the book, as I try to do most of the time, I'll often say Paul this and Paul that. So just recognize I am not insisting that Paul wrote it. I'm just telling you I candidly believe it for a lot of reasons, most of which we covered in the earlier two sessions. We're in the third session here. So we do know a great deal about the author. He had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament. And he also was a Hellenistic Jew. He also had a great Greek education. But the important thing, given those two facts, is he is writing to Jewish believers. These are not people who are unsaved. These are Jewish believers. And they were under much persecution. That's obvious in, from the context of the letter. It's very important that you understand who the readers are, who it was written to. Because if you're confused about that, you'll be confused about some of the solutions. And uh, you, need, you won't understand the solution, the, que- the answer, unless you know what the question was, so to speak. So we'll do that. The main issues that you're going to confront here, confront here, there are five warnings in the book. The nature of those warnings is essential to understand. And uh, we'll deal with that very, very carefully as we go. And we'll encounter the first of those five tonight, as you get a feeling for it. But this will all begin to yield its ambiguities if you understand to whom it was written... And you need to understand the dangers that are presented for not persevering. And uh, that's really, the, there's a great deal of revelation in this book. There's an awful lot of things we'll learn. But the main thing you want to carry away from this experience is the five dangers, warnings, that will be covered. And they, ask, they're very def- uh, they have some very specific characteristics. We're going to see a composite portrait of Christ that's unique in the New Testament. The coming rule of Christ. Christ is going to rule. And you'll be shocked to discover why it is that most churches miss it. But this, this whole book begins and centers on the coming glory of Christ from the Old Testament. I, as I opened one of the other sessions, what Bible study is given by seven different people on 12 different occasions in the New Testament, and has rarely and always had great fruit, and is never given today. And the answer is presenting Jesus Christ entirely from the Old Testament. In the Book of Acts, when they had the Scriptures, they're basically talking about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what they used. That was their Bible, presenting Christ entirely from the Old Testament. This book will do that. We'll have seven quotes just in the first chapter, we, uh, uh, so forth. And uh, the, and it's interesting that these quotations are not from the Hebrew Old Testament, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done three centuries earlier. But um, most of the most, not all, but most of the quotes in the New Testament of the Old are quoting from the, Sep, the Septuagint, that is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew tra- uh, Old Testament was translated into Greek about three centuries before Christ's ministry, and uh, it's interesting that that became very much the uh, the Christian's Bible in the early centuries. 
But it's what most people don't realize. It's amazing how many commentaries they've gone through. They do a great job about many things, but they miss the key point. The kingdom of Christ is the grand central theme of all Scripture. And I'll show you that specifically as this evening unfolds. In fact, we'll take a quick snapshot from Matthew's Gospel. The last few verses of chapter 23, that's just before the Olivet Discourse, 24 and all of that, Matthew describes the purpose of all history. He describes the tragedy of all history. I should say Jesus does in Matthew. Jesus presents the purpose of all history, the tragedy of all history, and yet the triumph, the ultimate triumph of all history. In just a few verses. Wow. That's pretty pithy. That's pretty tight. That's very specific. Starting at, it's the last three verses of that chapter. Matthew 23, starting verse 37. Jesus says as, he, as, he, as he's you know, entering Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings. That is the purpose, God's purpose of all history, is to gather his own. That's what it was all set up to do. That's the purpose. The tragedy of all history, and ye would not. The Messiah that was prophesied in great detail through the centuries shows up on schedule. The specific day that he would make his appearance was predicted by Gabriel to Daniel, etc., etc. And in spite of all that, they rejected him. That was the tragedy of all history. That plunged that nation into blindness. Jesus decrees blindness upon it and so forth. Not forever, but for, for virtually 2,000 years. He says, behold, because of that, you would not be. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. That leads to the diaspora, as we call it. But that's not the end of the story. See, the tragedies ye would not. The triumph of all history is the next verse. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till, that's a key word, you always want to watch for these untils in Scripture. That's a milestone. You will not see me henceforth until ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When is Israel going to say that? At the end of the tribulation. It'll take the tribulation to drive them to the wall to wake up. How do I know that? From Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, the last verse of Hosea 5. Jesus says, I will go and return to my place. To return, he must have left it. I return to my place till, there's another one of these untils, they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. Acknowledge their offense, that's singular and specific. And seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. That's the purpose of the tribulation, and on it goes. Well, getting back to the book of Hebrews, the kingdom that Jesus is coming to take over is the grand central theme of all Scripture. And I have been premillennial all my life, but I never fully appreciated that it is, the millennium is simply the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We'll talk about that as this whole book unfolds. Now, this, is, this suddenly makes it clear why most church, not all, but most churches don't see this because they have been brought up in a denomination that has a tradition of what they call amillennialism. Amillennialism is the denial that the millennium is literal. 
That, well, it only appears in one chapter in the Bible, Revelation 20, and that's just an allegorical thing. He's going to rule in our hearts and so forth. They have a way of, of trying to just treat it as an allegory. The tragedy is it's not just in that one chapter. It is throughout the entire Bible. There's more, there, there is more prophecy about the millennium than any other period in the Bible. Once you realize it's the fulfillment, there are four unconditional covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the everlasting covenant. The Davidic covenant's an everlasting covenant. And we'll, talk, we'll, we'll be dealing with that as we go through. But that, that puts this whole thing in a totally different complexion. The millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now what this is going to lead up to, and the reason it's so important for you and me, is our inheritance. You and I as believers in Christ have an inheritance, but it's not inevitable. It's one that we can forfeit if we're not faithful. can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your inheritance. That's what we're coming up to. Our inheritance, not our justification, and we'll get into that later this evening. It's our inheritance that's in view. And whether you get the inheritance that's set aside for you depends on your faithfulness and your obedience. And that's big news for many. Now, if you want to stand back from the whole book, the book is, among other things, it's going to attack the major pillars of Judaism. And it, it, towards the end of that, Judaism alone is not the answer. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, you've got unfulfilled prophecies, unappeased longings, and so forth. Without the New Testament, it's incomplete. But with the New Testament, it is not only completed, it's superseded. And that's the point of the right author. And he doesn't, he doesn't make this point from a position of apostolic authority. Quite the contrary, he doesn't, he deliberately, that's why he doesn't sign the letter. He lets the logic stand on its own feet, leaning only on those beliefs that the Jews hold so dear. It goes and he builds the whole case from the Old Testament. He'd learned that whenever he speaks, that he causes riots. He didn't want to prejudice the letter by having it signed. Let it, it's, a, it's a treatise. It stands on its own two feet. Even today, that's true. Many people who are in Messianic fellowships find themselves getting in under the law. and They don't, they don't regard Paul as seriously as most of us do. For this letter, it doesn't matter. Not signed by Paul. It stands or falls on its own foundation, which is, of course, the Old Testament. In it, we're going to discover, it's going to, it's going to attack certain tenets of Judaism. But the real issue isn't that. The real issue are five warnings that we're going to encounter, and we'll get the first of those tonight. And those warnings, the issue that lies under those warnings is our inheritance, not our justification. But uh, watch as we go. The, the book is also distinctive in that it describes the priesthood of Christ. We all know about Christ up through the cro cross. He died for our sins, rose again the third day. What's he doing today? He's got a new job. He's our high priest. What does that mean? It's not a Levitical priesthood. It has some very significantly difference, and there's also a new covenant rather than the old. We're also going to encounter what we call the Hall of Faith, a, a tour de force of the great leaders of the past, and they have lessons for all of us. And the key lessons that will come out of all of this is becoming an overcomer. We'll discover there are all kinds of promises for the overcomer. And uh, 
Even people who fail to become an overcomer are still saved, but they just forfeit their inheritance. That's the end of it. And we'll encounter a term called the metakoi, the partaker, the one that has become an overcomer. Jesus has three offices, and they're summarized in this book. His prophetic office, his kingly office, his priestly, prophet, priest, and king. That's our Lord. All three will take new focus in this epistle. Now, in the first three verses that we took the first night of our session, we see that the Son of God is the final revealer of God. He's the heir of all things. Through the Son, the ages were made, the, 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 the various time domains. He's the brightness of God's glory. He's the image of the Father. He upholds all things by His power. He made purification of sin. He sat down on majesty. And I, this was all laid out, a whole panorama of Christian, in three verses. In just three verses. Wow. He's superior to the angels He's going to, in, in several ways. The next 14 verses of chapter 1 we saw last time, he's superior to the angels by virtue of the fact that of his deity, but he's not finished there. He's also superior to the angels because of his humanity. You've got to be kidding. If God made him lower than the angels, how can he be superior to the angels? Well, we'll see. That sounds contradictory. And also by virtue of the salvation he provided. So that's, that, that's the, the, the first line we had last time. And this time we're going to take the rest of the, these other two. We talked a lot about angels last time. I'm going to review that a little bit because that overlaps in here. We're going to encounter a lot about angels in chapter 2. Let's refresh ourselves. See, the Jews regarded angels as the most exalted of all God's creatures. That was their mindset about angels. They're really up there. Angels are pretty formidable creatures. The law was given to Moses by angels. That surprised me when I first ran into that. Yes, God gave Moses the law, in fact, letter by letter, apparently, but he used angels to do so, and that's both twice in the Old Testament and twice in the New. God came from Sinai with 10,000 holy ones. That term actually, it says saints in your King James, it actually is, uh, it was an Old Testament term for angels. If you were brought up with an Old Testament background, you would walk into this with a very high view of angels. That's important to understand what the writer is getting at as you go forward. They're ministering spirits. They're God's ministers all through Psalms. They also minister to God. They're His, his, they're his agents, if you will, but they're also those that minister to Him. They are holy. They surround God's throne. They're seeing do, they often are seen, uh, seen doing battle on our behalf. All through the Old Testament, we see that. An angel stopped the mouths of lions for Daniel. And uh, they sprang people out of prison several times in the book of Acts. They're assigned specifically to care for us, and this care begins at infancy. That's what we call them guardian angels. I was surprised to find the guardian angels is a biblical concept, Matthew 18.10. And they also continue throughout our entire lives. Psalm 91 touches on that. The last verse of last time's lesson talks about angels that are sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. That's a very key phrase, by the way, that we brought out last time, but let me mention it again. Shall inherit salvation. Apparently, there's an aspect of salvation that's yet future. Not justification, that's past, but there's a part that's future, and we'll explain that as we go further. But it's interesting, one angelic role is to observe us. Do you know they're watching? Girls, they're watching. They're, guys, they're watching what you say. They watch our sufferings. 
And by the way, girls, they even watch what you wear. Just thought I'd mention that. Now it'll take even longer before that mirror, won't you? Yeah, right. <laughs> when a believer dies, his soul is escorted to heaven by angels, Luke 16. Now the writer picked seven Old Testament verses to support his proposition that Christ is superior to the angels. To you and I, that might not mean a lot, but to the Jewish mind, that's a high watermark, man. And if Christ is superior to that, whoa, that's, prove it to me. That's tough. He's going to prove it not by his authority or anything else. He's going to show them in their scriptures that's what it says. Verse 6 of last time's lesson. And again, when he bringeth the first begotten of the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. That's the point. See, the angels will worship Christ. That proves he's superior. It's right there in, in, in the Old Testament. That all the angels worship. He's quoting from Psalm 97. The point is that the angels are commanded to worship him. Thus Christ is above the angels. In verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 45. Unto the, unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thy throne. See, the Father saying to the Son, Unto thy throne, O God. This is a statement about the Son's deity. The de Angels do not sit on thrones. They don't rule. And how long is Christ's th throne? A thousand years? No. Forever and ever. Subtle difference. His reign is eternal. His throne is forever. The promise to Mary. Gabriel told Mary that her child is going to sit on the throne of David. Angels don't sit on thrones. Okay. And uh, thy kingdom. And that this is the kingdom, the thing that, the illuminating thing, just to put in the back of your mind, is the kingdom we're talking about is the Davidic kingdom. It's not a kingdom in heaven, it's a kingdom from heaven. Kingdom of heaven, of and from are identical words in both Hebrew and German. Kingdom from heaven. It has a capital, it's Jerusalem. It has a palace, the floor plan is in Ezekiel, and so on. It's a tangible kingdom that's coming. It's not some kind of fuzzy, fuzzy thing in the... In the never, never. Davidic covenant. In Acts 15, when they have the big argument, what does a Gentile have to do to become a Christian? James, the Lord's brother, chairs that meeting and quotes from Amos 9 that David's tabernacle is going to be rebuilt and that Jesus will take it. Now, Jesus announces a deity. He presents his position, his throne, his kingship. His reference to the scepter. All, this, all these messianic insights are coming out right here in the early chapters of, he, of the Epistle of Hebrews. The excellency or impartiality of his reign. The completion, the, the perfection of his character on earth. The place of his subjection. His reward in terms of being anointed. All these things are already laid out from what we've seen so far. And of course his preeminence in all these things is the point. So I bring us to the next to the last verse last time. We said, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. God never said that to an angel, but that's what he said to Jesus Christ. See, the, the author is pointing out that Christ is above the angels. And he's just getting warmed up, okay? But see, from these arguments, we're not really troubled by that like a Jewish mind might be, but we're learning a lot about what's called Christology, the real nature of Christ. Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemy's footstool. God never said that to the angels. But of course, he did say that in Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110 is one of the most oft, often quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted 25 times in the New Testament, 10 times in this epistle. 
We're going to run into Psalm 110 again and again and again for a number of different reasons. By the way, this is the very verse that Jesus quoted to confuse the lawyers. You may recall that the, the Herodians, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees all tried to trap him and they couldn't do so. He says, let me ask you a question. Okay. Christ, whose son is he? He said, the son of David. Then Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. How can Jesus call him Lord if he's if the son of David? How can he do that? If he's the son of David, how can, how can David call him Lord? And he quotes a psalm that they knew. Gee, they, couldn't, they, didn't, they didn't know how to answer that. And I love the phrase that ends that, that passage in, in, in Matthew 22. They no longer ask him any questions. What most people miss, this is Psalm 110 verse 1 in the English. Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What makes this a puzzle is that Yodhe Adonai, the word Adonai has a Yod at the end of it, which makes it possessive. How can David how, uh, call him Lord, Yodhe Adonai, my Lord? How can he call him my Lord? The my, it's possessive. It's because of a yod. Now when you go to Matthew 5, 17 and 18, remember Jesus said, Think not that I come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I come not to destroy, uh, the, but to, to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one yod or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. But a yod is the, a little, one of the 22 Hebrew letters that you'd not, you and I would mistake for an apostrophe. But when that finalizes that class of noun, it makes it possessive. Christ's whole argument that confused the lawyers was hung on a yacht. Just a yacht. And they couldn't deal with it. They gave up. One yacht or one tittle. Okay. Let's get back to Hebrews. The last verse of Hebrews, last time we were together. This is all, this has all been sort of reviewed. Are they not all ministering spirits, angels, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Wow. The angels are ministering spirits, sent forth to minister to whom? Them who shall be heirs of salvation. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>